All right, so listen, we're going to read out of uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, I'm sorry. Let's do a little local dialect. The book of Ruth. Let's just give it a Newfoundland dialect. The book of Ruth. Yeah, so we're going to read out the book of Ruth. It's a small book between Judges and 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. We're going to read from chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. And then we're going to jump over to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. So that's Ruth. Or root, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, and 4, verses 1 to 7. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So wash therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she, Ruth, replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry... He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then I, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Now sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who came back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. (laughs) Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetrate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I did forget, Jen asked me to give you a message. For any kids that are left here, you can be dismissed to go downstairs to your classes. Yeah? So let me start off by asking you a question. 
Have you ever been in a situation where the craziness of life is unfolding before you? I mean, like, it's an absolute tornado. You're so focused on the fine details. You're so focused on what you're doing, how you're investing, how you can make things move in your own strength, and you, you, you fail to see what God is doing on a bigger scale. Oh, and if you have a moment in mind, add something else. Add a crisis of faith on top of that, and then tell me, then tell me when you're trying to work out the details in your own strength and the crisis of faith, how quickly you submit it all to God. Because for me, yeah, I, I very, it's, it, in a situation like that, I'd find it easier to continue on in my own strength than to submit it to God. Let me give you an example. So for those who don't know me, I'm a details and a punctuality man. I, I love knowing details about everything and anything. Case in point, the Christmas banquet. So Pastor Steve commissioned myself, Dave, and Adam to get the banquet ready, and I almost drowned daily under the details of what was going on. But that's not my example. <laughs> my example is, is this. So my wife and I have made two international trips. In 2012, we moved to Australia as a newly married couple, and in 2018, we moved back to Canada with a small brood. But in that, I had everything down to a spreadsheet. I had every detail every task down to months in columns, how much things were going to cost. And I, I just, that's just how my brain functions. But there came a point in the process when everything was going swimmingly, but I needed to get my girls their Canadian passports because they're dual citizens. But in order to get their passports, I needed to get proof of their Canadian citizenship. But to get that, I needed to get my long-form birth certificate from the Canadian government. And so I'm looking at my timelines. I'm seeing that I have, according to my spreadsheet, you know, three or four weeks to get, get this whole process finished. And I'm freaking out. Like, I'm looking at what's happening, what I have to do. My mind is going to mush. And so up to that point, I could see God's hand moving across the entire process. There was a lot of work to be done, and I could see him moving people in place, but this one curveball comes along, and I'm like, no, I gotta do this. I got to do this. I got to do this, this, and this. And I turned God away. I, I totally lost focus. It's like I had my blinders on and I just couldn't see, yeah, what God was doing. But in the end, we're here. Uh, and so he, he worked all things for, for his glory. And I think, I think it, when you look at this text, when you look at Ruth and Naomi, uh, particularly Naomi, I, I think you see this same principle being played out, right? You see Naomi getting overwhelmed in the small details. And I argue She's having a crisis of faith. We'll exp well, I'll look at that in a bit. But you also see God's hand moving over Ruth and Boaz from a bigger perspective than what they can truly see. Now, as Steve and Paul preached in the weeks prior, we're doing this series, this Christmas family tree, and we're looking at some key people in Jesus' genealogy um, and just, yeah, spending some time talking about them. And so today, I'm supposed to talk to you about Ruth. But I can't ignore Naomi and Boaz. All three of them play an equal part in this unfolding story of, uh, of, of Ruth and her need to find a, uh, a redeemer. And so my goal for today is to not only show you why Ruth longed for a redeemer, but also how both her and Boaz foreshadow what Christ will do and what he does for his bride. And so I called my sermon, Jesus, the Greater Redeemer. 
But before we, before we jump into the text, because there's a lot to get through, I've got to do a quick overview of chapters 1 and 2 to make sense of what chapter 3 is talking about, and, and chapter 4. So chapter 1, we read that a famine had overtaken Israel, and this guy named Elimelech, and I'm, I'm probably butchering his name because I, I don't speak Hebrew, he takes his wife Naomi and their two sons and they leave for Moab in search of better days. Now Elimelech dies, he leaves Naomi a widow, their two sons grow up, uh, marry Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah, then his two sons die, and now, <laughs> and now Naomi decides to go back to Israel with her daughter-in-law Ruth. And finally at the end of chapter 1, you start to see Naomi's crisis of faith unfolding. Now I'm going I'm to come back to that in a second, so just hold that thought. But in chapter 2, we're introduced to this guy named Boaz. Now I want to show you why Boaz is a type of Christ, because it's important for, for the, the direction I'm going in this sermon. Now, much like Christ in chapter 2, Boaz exhibits this level of, of integrity that's unheard of from a man in his time. For example, he's noble. He's prominent. He places his hands of protection over this Moabite woman who, for lack of better terms, she's not only a foreigner, but she's also vulnerable. He's considerate to her. He shares his resources with this unfamiliar stranger. He dines with her. He commands his workers with how to treat her. And he provides her with food to bring back to her mother-in-law. Like, guys, this is quality. This is a quality guy. And, to, and if, you, if you want to bridge a gap and look in the New Testament, I think an equivalent would be like Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well. There's a whole lot of cultural nuances happening when it comes to men and women talking to each other outright like it's there, there's a lot of stigmas that go with that but like jesus boaz supersedes these expectations he breaks these cultural barriers and like a cinderella story at the end of chapter two you see ruth running home and telling everything to naomi and so when you read chapter two you start to get this sense that there's that there's this little budding romance happening between ruth and boaz but in verse 20 of chapter two naomi says something interesting she says to Ruth, this man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. And some translations say guardian redeemer, some say family redeemer. So if I toss out family redeemer, guardian redeemer, just yeah, know that I'm talking about the same thing. But I, I want to unpack this for a second, this whole idea of what it means to be redeemed in the context of this book, and then this whole idea of a family redeemer. Because they're, they're both very closely related, and in some ways they overlap a little. So first, the word redeem, all right? So that has a lot of uses in the Bible. It's a really colorful word, but in the context of this book, when you look at how Ruth is being redeemed, it has more of an agricultural and family lean to it. It'll make sense in a few moments. This is where the whole family redeemer term starts to overlap. So this idea of a family redeemer, it's, it's foreign in Western culture. We, we, don't really, we don't really see it being played out as it did in ancient Israel, right? So... A family redeemer would, would buy back a family member from a debt slavery, or if that family member had to sell land to pay back a debt, a family redeemer would also do that as well. So like, it's, it's a bit, we don't really see it in the West happening. Or maybe we do, I just, yeah, I'm not familiar with it. Secondly, a family redeemer would also marry the widow of a deceased relative. He would have children with her in the name of the deceased relative so that the connection between the relative and the family's property remained intact. 
And again, like that's, that's a totally foreign concept here in the West. I think, I think the closest thing that we would see here is, like, let's say you have a parent and uh, an, uh, an adult, or yeah, a parent, and they have children, and the, the parent comes in a hard way, and now the grandparents have to uh, take ownership, not ownership, but take possession. What's the word I'm looking for? They have to take uh, responsibility for the child. That's what I'm trying to say. It, it, see, it, it's a hard thing to bridge the gap between what happens in ancient Israel and, and here. Um, so there you go. In Ruth... Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, you see her coming back to Naomi, and she absolutely spills everything to her. It's like she comes back like a, like a little giddy schoolgirl who had a first crush and says, hey, this is what's happened. <laughs> so, and Naomi says to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And you can just imagine the excitement that Naomi must have felt hearing all this. After all, up to this point, Ruth and Naomi have returned to Israel. Ruth has spent some time working in Boaz's fields, Boaz has taken notice of her. He protects her. He invites her out to dinner. I mean, she has basically found favor in the eyes of Boaz. I mean, why wouldn't Naomi do this for Ruth, right? She's young. She's not married. She can still have kids. But not only that, Boaz is wealthy. He's prosperous. And he's the family redeemer. You see, Naomi knows the law the law that Moses gave the Israelites, and she knows what a family redeemer is and what his obligations are for people in this situation. But here's the thing. What we see happening at the beginning of chapter 3, this is the external manifestation of Naomi's crisis of faith. I mean, she's had a pretty rough go. If you look back at chapter 1, she's lost her husband. She's lost her kids. She's a widow. And because of all of this, right, they're in a very hard place. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read the book of Ruth, you see Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And I see myself a lot in Naomi. I mean, here's a person who knows what God's word says. But when the going gets tough, she collapses inwards, and her trust in God is shaken. She gets caught up in the fine details about sorting out a certain situation, And she loses her trust in God's promises. And after looking at her more and more, I seriously wonder if she's actually just struggling on whether the truth of God will amount to anything or nothing. And it's not just in the fine details that's of concern, but also, as I mentioned, the reality of who Ruth and Naomi truly are. They're widows. All right. We got to just take a moment to look at what it means to be a widow in ancient Israel. So I want to paint a picture for you. One commentator says this, For the widow, poverty and indebtedness were all too often descriptive of her financial situation when the main source of her economic support, her husband, had perished. Indeed, she was frequently placed alongside the orphan and the landless immigrant as representative of the poorest of the poor in the social structure of ancient Israel. With minimal, if any, inheritance rights, she was often in no man's land. She had left her family and with her husband's death, The bond was now severed between her and the family. In modern terms, I think this would be something like a young woman, pre-30s, who has no children, no education. She's dependent on government assistance. Society has turned her back on her, and her relatives are nowhere to be found. And even still in the 21st century, that's a hard stigma to overcome. That is a brutal lifestyle to overcome. But here's the thing. When you look at chapter 3, 
Ruth wears it. She owns it. She doesn't shrink up from the fact that she's a widow or that she's in a poverty-stricken state. She doesn't let it rule over her. Yeah, she may be in poverty, but poverty doesn't own her. And can you start to see now why Ruth might have longed to be redeemed? To be rescued? And so you can almost sense Naomi's confusion, right? If everything has gone great between Ruth and Boaz, why hasn't the Redeemer extended his hand of marriage to Ruth? And if you look at verses 3 and 4, I believe we see Naomi trying to speed up the process. She gives Ruth four things to do. Verses 3 and 4. First, Ruth needs to take a bath. Pretty important. Second, she needs to put on some perfume. Third, she needs to put on her best clothes. And fourth, she needs to go down to the threshing floor, uncover Boaz's feet, lay down, and wait. And here's where I want to make my first point. So point one, God is the author of your redemption. It's not something you can swindle or scheme or weasel your way into. It's not something you can simply concoct a plan for. No ritual or journey or incantation or tradition or good work or act of kindness or good moral judgment is going to cause God to make uh, to move quicker than what he's already determined to redeem you and save you. Now consider this question, okay? If we could ever give anything to God to make him move any quicker, Paul tells us in Romans 11.34, who has ever given to God that he might be repaid? There's nothing you can do to make God rescue you from your sin any quicker. And I'm sorry if that sounds bleak, and it is. But there's good news. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or as the Apostle John writes, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You see, it's all Christ. Your redemption isn't your own doing. It's all Jesus. And in Christ, you would be redeemed, bought back, and purchased at a very expensive cost. In Luke, we are told that it was Jesus who set us eyes upon Calvary. In Philippians, it was Christ who humbled himself by becoming a man. In Matthew, it was Jesus who endured temptation after temptation after temptation and yet did not sin. And John, in John, it was Christ who, after being beaten to a bloody, a bloody pulp, triumphantly cried out, it is finished. It's all Jesus. So no, my friends, you can't buy your redemption. You can't scheme your way into it. You can't persuade God or influence him to redeem you. Because he has. In his own timing. Through Christ. And that's the beauty of it all. Because of Christ, that's why he's the great redeemer. And so in verse 5 of chapter 3, We see Ruth going down to the threshing floor at night and does everything her mother-in-law told her to do. But let me tell you what's not happening here, okay? I want to break some ideas. So culturally and historically speaking, the the threshing floor was a place where laborers would go at night to lay down and protect their harvest from animals and invaders. But the threshing floor was also a place of immense sexual promiscuity. Given that Ruth takes place during the time of the judges, it's no surprise that an average Israelite might have welcomed the night visit of a woman. 
and in turn an offer for sexual favors, but not so with Boaz and definitely not so with Ruth. Remember, Boaz is a man of integrity and even Ruth transcends her own cultural and social background. And I want to show you why, okay? I want to focus on Ruth for a second now. It all has to do with where Ruth is found in the Old Testament, okay? So in the Hebrew Bible, now I want, I want to make a distinction here, okay? So in, in the version that the Jews would read uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the ordering of the Old Testament is a bit different than how we have it in, our, in the ESV or whatever Bible you have now. And I, I don't want to create confusion. Everything is the same. All the books are the same. All the wording is the same. It's just some of the books are ordered differently and in different spots. And if, you, if you're still confused, come see me. Come see Pastor Steve or anyone after the fact, and we'll explain to you why. So in, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is placed directly after Proverbs, not Judges. As the book of Proverbs illustrates the wisdom of a righteous man, it concludes with chapter 31, the description of the virtuous woman. Ironically, Boaz is wisdom personified. He's a wise man who acts with respect and dignity, even in the most tempting situations. And interestingly, Ruth, a Moabitess, is personified as the godly woman. In fact, the very language used to describe the Proverbs 31 woman of character, whose, praise her, who, sorry, whose works praise her in the gates, is used regarding Ruth in chapter 3, verse 11, which literally reads, All the gate of my people knows that you are a woman of worth. But here's the tension with Proverbs 31. No, no, here's the tension with Proverbs. The standard is way too high, right? Proverbs is a ridiculously high standard to achieve for a man or for a woman. But uh, my sisters, I want to just, I want to talk to you just briefly for a moment, just to you. In an age where the value and worth of a woman is still being attacked, I want you to know that you are valued, that you are loved, that you are cherished, and you are adored. You are our sisters, our wives, you are our mothers, our grandmothers, our daughters, but more importantly, you are a daughter of the living God. Can I get all the ladies to say, I am a daughter of the living God? I was really nervous to ask that. You know, I thought about that last night. And I was like, can I pull this off? So thank you guys. Thank you for saving me. <laughs> but coming back to the text, Proverbs 31 is Yahweh's standard. But yet, here's Ruth, a foreigner from Moab, a foreigner who lived in a society that served other gods, exemplifying what it means to be a noble and honorable woman. In fact, the, the national god of the Moabites was Chemosh, or scholars are, are trying to figure out if this is the same god as Moloch. Um, still, the, 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 the decision's out on that, but regardless if it was, Chemosh was known as the abomination of Moab. And I'm just going to toss this out there. This god required child sacrifice. I'm not even touching that today. So just, that's who the Moabites worshipped. That's who Ruth uh, worshipped. And if that's not bad enough... Moabite women were also known to be sexually promiscuous. And all this is to say that in the context of this book and of history itself, everything worked against Ruth for her to not be the woman described in Proverbs 31. 
her society, her upbringing, her religion, and her background. And here's where I'm going with this. Despite the loss of her father-in-law, despite the loss of her husband, despite her relationships in society, despite her religious affiliation, despite all of this, she turned her back against it all and said to Naomi in chapter 1, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And I'm going to argue here, this may be the most important verse to show why Ruth is considered a woman of integrity. Because she seeks Yahweh. But Naomi's wager doesn't come without risks. Remember, this takes place during the time of the judges, a time when everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And now it all depends on how Boaz is going to respond to Ruth coming down, uncovering his feet, and laying at his side. And so at midnight in chapter 3, verses 8, Boaz is startled. He wakes up and finds this mysterious woman laying at his feet. Now, contrary to how maybe many would have reacted during this, Boaz sees through the culture and the misconceptions, and he doesn't see this as an opportunity to have sex. Look, by the act of uncovering his feet, Ruth was essentially inquiring about Boaz's willingness to fulfill the role of a family redeemer, to take her as his wife and provide for her. And so he asks, who are you? Remember, this is at nighttime, right? Who are you? His question is profound. This would be like someone saying to you, so, tell me about yourself. That question is never about the surface. It's always, let's get under the, un, under the surface. Who are you? Tell me about yourself. And her response, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. But this right here, in case you missed it, it's, it's a clear, blatant message to Boaz of, I want you. I want you to propose to me right now. I'm laying at your feet. I've been in your fields. You've protected me. You've blessed me. You've invited me to eat at your table. Now spread your garment over me and make me your bride. Whoa. Whoa. That's only something a husband would do for his wife, to spread his garment over her. But now watch what happens, right? Watch Ruth undergo an identity change. She calls herself his servant. Now, I know there's some negative connotations to the term servant. I can't ignore history, but in, in chapter 2 and 3, Ruth is called a servant twice. In chapter 2, this is exactly what you think it means, a lowly maid. But by this time in chapter 3, She's elevated to someone who is in the higher social strata of Israelite culture. And so in chapter 2, she's also known as the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. By omitting this ethnic label, Moabitess, she speaks as a full-fledged Israelite. She was once a foreigner without an identity, and now she speaks as a citizen with an identity. And here's my second point. Redemption results in new identity. When faced with a new reality of being redeemed, you should feel challenged, and you should assume a posture of humility. You should feel a posture of submission, and then start to reconcile your new identity. Let me explain. Let me explain this. 
Jesus says, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. Great line. And I believe this is a great reminder that our redemption radically changes who we are. Your spiritual DNA changes from one end to another. And, and your old self, who you used to be, can no longer contain who God intended you to be. You are no longer a foreigner wandering a desolate wasteland. You are a citizen of a kingdom far greater than anything you can comprehend. Your redemption now clothes you in his righteousness. You are called a son or daughter of the living God. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have been adopted to sonship. You are one with Christ in spirit. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are a child of God. But for Ruth, she was looking for her redeemer. And indeed, her life and her fate now kind of rested in Boaz's hands. And so verses 11 to 13, Boaz says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Boaz's response is tender. It's gentle. It's affirming. Because of his integrity, he sees through the culture and understands Ruth's true motives. Boaz recognizes Ruth's integrity. He recognizes her virtue, her innocence, and her pure motives. And in turn, he blesses her for her, her humility and submission. Remember, Boaz is, after all, about to live out his duty as a family redeemer. And in doing so, he's about to foreshadow what Christ will do for his bride. Boaz is about to take something, in this case, someone and give her new meaning, new purpose, new life. He's about to buy back to redeem someone who is unable to, for lack of better terms, to redeem themselves. His response towards Ruth is beautiful. In its purest sense, it's an act of loyal love. This is the same type of love that Jesus shows towards his people. And according to R.C. Sproul, it's the type of love that is genuine, immutable, and loyal. One commentator puts it this way. Though Ruth arrives at Boaz's bed empty-handed and humble to the core, Boaz treats her with respect and kindness. Disgraced by her position and despised for her ethnicity, this young Moabite woman appears to have little to offer. Yet, despite all this, Boaz views her as a worthy woman. Though Ruth comes from a family that has turned their backs on the Lord, the Lord now turns his face towards Ruth and reveals himself to her through Boaz. Boaz foreshadows Jesus Christ, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who will redeem a bride for himself, the church. Ruth has nothing to offer, yet she still goes searching for her redeemer. She has nothing to offer, yet she still goes searching. And that brings me to my third point. Redemption is in the redeemer's power. So jumping over to, to Ruth 4, verses 1 to 10, that's where we're going to spend the last bit of time here. Although the relationship with, between Boaz and Ruth ultimately points us towards Christ, we need to be mindful that it is only through Christ that we find redemption. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, we see Boaz coming good on his promise to redeem Ruth. Unfortunately for Ruth, the near redeemer turns down the offer because his inheritance would suffer. And this speaks volumes. In life, you're going to meet people. You're going to come into contact with things who claim they can save you. But they can't. Outside of Christ, they can't. 
You're not going to find security in your money. You're not going to find security in your job or your family or your church. It's only through Christ that you're going to find security and redemption. But look what happens, right? Look what happens. Boaz steps up and takes a place as the true and rightful redeemer. Boaz moves from being willing to being able. He moves from being willing to being able. And not only that, he places considerable risk upon himself to redeem Ruth. But hasn't Christ done the same for his bride? Hasn't Christ paid a considerable expense to redeem his church? Has not the Christ considered the cost of buying back something that, to the perception of many, is undesirable and unredeemable? But here's the thing. Unlike Boaz, no matter what you bring to Jesus, he is the greater redeemer who is both willing and able. But let's ask a question, why? Why is Christ both willing and able? He risked being insulted, the religious leader scorned him. He risked humiliation. He hung naked on a cross. He risked being alone. His friends left him, and the father turned away from the son. He risked harm. He was beaten, flogged, and pierced through his hands and feet. He risked his life, and he died a criminal's death. And for what? For what? For you. And that's the loyal love of God that kept him moving forward. Because Christ is the greater redeemer. This is how another commentator describes it. In the New Testament, Christ is often regarded as an example of a kinsman redeemer because as our brother, he also redeems us because of our great need. One that only he can satisfy. And in Ruth 3 verse 9, we see a beautiful and poignant picture of the needy supplicant, unable to rescue herself, requesting of the kingsman redeemer that he would cover her with his protection, redeem her, make her his wife. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ bought us for himself out of the curse, out of destitution. He made his, his own beloved bride and blessed us for all generations. He is the true kinsman redeemer who all can call on him in faith. Amen? Amen. Last point. Point four. Christ has done everything required to redeem you. And I want to drive this point home with an illustration. I think God gives us kids as great sermon illustrations. Right? They're great sanctification makers, but they're great sermon illustration makers as well. So back in August, I had went to a men's Bible study. I went as I live. I got there at six o'clock in the morning, and by six forty-five a.m., I got a call. I got a call from my wife. She was crying, hysterical. She was sobbing. Something wasn't right. And through her cries and her broken sentences, I heard something that no parent ever wants to hear. The girls are missing. I left the house at 5.50, and by 6.45, they were gone. Ruth had searched the entire house. 
the front door and the back door were, back door were opened and unlocked, and the girls were nowhere to be found. I don't remember much between getting off the phone with my wife and jumping into the van. But by the time I turned the ignition, Ruth called me back and told me that she had found them down the road at the park. If you don't have children, it's, it's so hard to explain what it feels like to wake up or to just know your kids are gone. It, fear, panic, anxiety, terror, it's, it's gut-wrenching. It's pure dread. It sucks to know that your four-year-old and your six-year-old are out there somewhere, unable to defend themselves, and who knows what danger, picked up by goodness knows who, and for all you know, they're dead. It's disgusting. All I wanted to do was to find my kids. I would have moved heaven and earth and everything in between me and them to ensure that they were rescued, redeemed, and in the safety of my arms. But it was also in that moment that I, I, I saw the gospel more clearly than I had ever uh, done so before. If I felt this way about rescuing my kids and redeeming them, how much more for God to us? Except he knows it for seven billion people. Here's the reality. As it says in Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. We're all rebellious. Often we love our sin more than we love God yet. And this, this should drop us to our knees. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or better yet, as Dustin Benji says, Jesus didn't die on the cross to merely make salvation possible. He died to redeem, purchase, and secure people that he had set his love upon before the foundation of the world. And that is why Christ is the great redeemer. Because like Ruth, who came to Boaz with nothing to offer, so too do we come before Christ with nothing to give. But yet like Boaz, who was willing to rescue and redeem Ruth from an inconvenient situation, we have Christ who is both willing and able to rescue and redeem us from a hopeless state. Jesus is the great redeemer. So we're... <laughs> Where do we go from here? What do we do with this? I don't really have like a three-point application to give you to get you through your week, but I just I want to leave you with some questions, right? Maybe this Christmas, no, maybe in life, you're feeling a bit like Naomi, and you've got your eyes in the details. Just stop. Just stop. And as cliche as that sounds, present your request to the Lord, as it says in Philippians, and let the peace of God guide your mind and your soul. Or maybe you're a bit like Ruth, and you're actually searching for the Redeemer. If that's the case, come see me afterwards. Come see Pastor Steve or the elders, and we'll happy to have a chat and point you to Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you're a bit like Boaz, and God is giving you an opportunity to speak into someone's life and point them towards Christ. Then go. Why are you sitting here? You can be dismissed. No, 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 no. Don't delay. If you know someone who is searching and you have an opportunity to speak into their life, do it. Do it. Allow God to use you to demonstrate his loyal love 
for the sons and daughters he secured before the foundations of the world. Let's pray. Father, it's always good to come before you in our brokenness, in our sin, in our struggles. It is just good to come before you because Christ, you are the great redeemer. You paid an expensive cost to redeem for yourself a bride. And so simply put, Jesus, thank you. Would you continue to redeem those who are searching? Would you continue to reach out to those who are seeking? And may the loyal, immutable love of God overcome everyone who searches for you. Amen.